Kristen, we've got a lot to get through here, so I'm going to need you to not be your usual chaotic self and buckle down. Who am I supposed to be? You're supposed to be buckle down. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. I don't have buckles on this chaos suit. I really thought you weren't going to run with this. <laughs> figured you'd tell me that you're always buckled down and I'm the chaotic one. Nope. Okay, I need to be chaotic. No, I need to not be chaotic. You need to buckle now, down. Now, everybody buckle Everybody buckle in and down. And around and put your left leg in and take your left leg out. <laughs> this really got away from me. You are chaotic energy today. And then we can do head, shoulders, knees, and toes, <laughs> oh, knees, and toes. That's for another day. It's true. Before you dive in, I want to give a quick shout out to all the folks who are supporting us each week. We are grateful for all of you. Thank you for listening. A special thanks goes out to our new patrons, Wolfpack3530, which is Martin, Sally, and Kita from Homicide Worldwide Podcast. If you haven't listened to it, definitely do. If you're into true crime, this needs to be on your regular rotation. So good. Love them. And they're phenomenal on Twitter. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon yet, we have an unlocked bonus episode that Martin so kindly reviewed. That was an amazing bonus episode. More, more, more. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in forever. That was fun and frightening all at the same time. Thank you, Martin. And there's also a short story review and Kristen's thoughts on the UIP report. Sum those thoughts up real quick in like two words or less. It's nothing. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> But oops, I wrote an essay, as Riley said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My turn? Your turn. All right, everybody. The episode we're doing is number nine, Spaced. No, just Space. Yep. Spaced is much better. Yes. Space, uh, not a great episode. At the very beginning of that episode, they barely mention JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I'm going to tell the story of the founding of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Kristen's never heard this story before. If you haven't, you're going to love it. If you have, you're excited to hear it told again. <laughs> Initially, I was just going to do this from memory, but I decided to look some stuff up, and I'm so glad I did, because the guy that we're going to focus on mainly here was born Marvel Whiteside Parsons. I guess it's it's an audio podcast. You can't see me making faces. <laughs> exactly. You need to react. Ugh. Something rubs me the wrong way with the white side. Oh. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, yeah, he is the son of Marvel Parsons and Ruth Parsons. Ladies taking their husbands' names. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Do whatever you want. <laughs> now, when Marvel Jr. was a little wee one, Marvel Sr. cheated on his wife. So Ruth stopped calling Marvel Jr. Marvel and started calling him John. So now his name is John Parsons. They get a divorce, Ruth and Marvel. John and Ruth move in with her parents. Okay. Who are loaded. They live in Pasadena, California, on this street that is referred to as Millionaire's Mile. Ugh. So they got money. So, I'm so sad, this poor single mom. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, people start calling John Jack. So he's on his third name now. Oh no. He was a nerdy kid. Eventually he made a lifelong friend named Edward Foreman, who saves him from a bully in the eighth grade. Okay, but what's his name now? Edward Foreman. What was it then? Edward Foreman. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't get to change his name? He never changes his name. I mean, it's not a bad name. Actually, he doesn't have a name now because he's long dead. Oh. Now, they shared a love of sci-fi and rocketry. Okay. It, oh, by the way, this is in like 1922. Oh, yeah, I guess you should tell me when this is. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking about the founding of, this is the founding of rockets, really. Okay. So this is in the early 20s at this so point. So some eighth graders founded rockets? Yes. 
Okay. The neighbors would complain all the time, and their lawn was full of burn marks and holes. <laughs> I, w- I would not like that either, being a millionaire. No. <laughs> 1920s, the they 1920s, they were millionaires? What is this, Great Gatsby? Something like it. It gets way worse than Great Gatsby. But likely they got the rockets from like the inside ads of their science fiction magazines and stuff. So it's not the beginning of rockets if they're buying rockets out of comic books. No, those little rockets, the ones that you shoot off in Boy Scouts, that stuff is what they're playing Oh, yeah, all those times I shot off rockets in Boy Scouts. All right, thank you. At the age of 12, Jack gets into the occult and does a ritual in his bedroom to summon the devil. Okay, but who hasn't joined the occult at 12? That's when I joined the occult in my little suburban town in Louisiana. Did you summon... The devil? No, because I'm not dumb. Well, he did, and he was so afraid that it had worked, he got out of the occult immediately. Did he start with Satan? Yeah. No! (laughs) Honey, you gotta start with, like, your friend's dead dad, because he's not gonna be mean to you. Or, then you accidentally use the Ouija board and invite a spirit into your house, and then it watches you shower, unless your dog's in the bathroom. But not the devil! I think you're gonna find that Jack Parsons does nothing halfway. Alright. John flunks out of high school and is sent off to boarding school, where he is expelled for blowing up the toilets. Do you just get to go to boarding school if you fail out because of money? Yes. Okay. Then his mom got him into what's called university school, but it's not a university. It's a high school. Okay. But it's like a liberal arts school, and he flourishes, and he really develops a love for chemistry at this time. At a liberal arts school? Yes. Okay. But then his grandpa dies, and with that kind of goes all the money. So Jack gets a job at the Hercules Powder Company. Which... What? Explosives. Okay. At the time, they owned, like, one-third of all of the TNT in the the United States of America. Okay, but I changed my mind of what Hercules Powder Company should be real quick. Okay. It needs to be, like, powdering your nose that women do in the little powder rooms, but Mm -hmm. for men, so the manly men can have their nose powder. Can it also be explosive? Sure. We double up on it. Yes. Multiple uses. Men like those two-for-ones. Yeah. Him and Edward both get into a college afterwards. A real college? A real not college. a high school college? Not a high school college. Okay. A real college, but drop out because, ah, this is for chumps. But they maintain their love of rockets. Okay. At 20, he meets and marries a woman named Helen Northrup. He later writes, The early marriage to Helen served to break your family ties and affect a transference to her away from a dangerous attachment to your mother. What? (laughs) Which part of your wedding? The fact that he's writing this, but he writes it to himself, your attachment to your mother. Or that he has a dangerous attachment to his mother. Uh, I don't like any of it. (laughs) So around this time, uh, Daniel Guggenheim of the Guggenheim. Yes, is, I am. I am aware. Is giving out grants to all these schools for aeronautics to develop an aeronautics department. Okay. In all these schools, and Edward and Jack go to a like a speech, like a seminar. Okay. Where this guy is talking about rockets because we're in the infancy. Nobody's doing it yet, but they have these ideas. And there, they are introduced to a guy named Frank Molina. Edward Molina's. Alfred Molina's. Yep. <laughs> Grandfather. Probably not. But my jokes don't land if I can't remember anybody's. 
wife's name. <laughs> no. Frank Molina <laughs> is a college graduate, a mathematician, and okay. into rocketry as well. So they team up, the three of them team up, and they create they create solid fuel rockets. They invent solid fuel rockets, which is what we used in the space program until like 10 years ago. They combine the oxygen and the fuel in powder form and compress it into a cake. And it just burns. What? Yeah, solid fuel rockets, baby. They compress it. They and turn it into a powder and then turn it into a cake. Compress it into a cake and then it just burns and. All right, excuse into space. me. I have to go to the NASA museum because I do not remember seeing that, <laughs> and I need to go touch that moon rock again. So. Yeah, I touched the moon rock. It was fun. BRB. And we're back. So reporters are coming around, and they're saying stuff like, so, hey, been to the moon yet? Hey, how's it going with the space flight? They're just getting mocked relentlessly. People, As you do. Because they're kind of kind of a joke. Now, Jack is living but with But didn't help. they just create this solid fuel rocket? Yeah, and so but now... nobody believes it's a real thing. Nobody believes that that's going to actually become a thing. Oh, they're going to feel silly. Now, Jack is living with Helen, and he's working at Halifax Gunpowder Company. I don't, I don't like when I recognize names. <laughs> he builds himself a lab on the front porch of the house. That's where everybody can see it. Yeah. All of his money that's not going towards bills is going towards the rockets. Right. And he's making nitroglycerin in the lab on the porch as a side hustle. This seems fine. It's yep. all fine. All of this is fine. He's asking his in-laws for loans. At one point, he pawns Helen's ring. They're just a real mess right now. The, their nickname on campus, the Caltech campus, is the Suicide Squad. Because they're just blowing stuff up. Ugh. But unfortunately they don't, so what bad things do they do now? Well, Jack gets called as an expert witness in a trial where a cop is accused of using a bomb to blow up a private investigator. I believe the cop's guilty. So does everybody, because of Jack's testimony. Oh! So Jack is now gone from, uh-huh, look at the dorks going to the, you want to go to the moon yet? Uh, the Suicide Squad, they're bleh, blowing stuff up all the time, too. Jack is an expert in this stuff. Oh, I see. Overnight, because of that trial. At the same time... That's not going to be good. In 1939, he attends a Gnostic Mass at the Church of Thelema. Is he still in the occult? He is back in, baby. Oh, yeah, because you said he left because he got scared by Because he summoned Satan. Which makes sense. I mean, if you don't get scared by Satan, what are you doing? This Mass was written by Aleister Crowley. Yay! I'm so excited! Sex parties! (laughs) (laughs) Aleister Crowley, obviously we don't have time to get into him here, but... Unfortunately. He created the Ordo Templi Orientis, Mm -hmm. specializing in sex magic. I know, because I love cults. (laughs) (laughs) And Jack and uh, Helen start going to the Agape Lodge in Los Angeles. All right. Frank Molina at this time, because he's the mathematician. Edward and Jack are just college dropouts shooting stuff into the air because that's what they like to do. Molina goes and requests funding for what they are now calling jet propulsion because rocketry is kind of a jokey thing. Okay. And they become the very first people 
to get government funding to do this. That's cool. Two college dropouts who just like blowing stuff up. I mean, it tracks. This you could have never told me what date this was, and it could still it could be today, could be a hundred years ago. Yeah, that's basically how this works. In June of 1940, they receive a twenty-two thousand dollar grant, and one quarter of that goes towards repairing buildings on the Caltech campus that they have destroyed. But what about property damage and how important that is? That's why a quarter of their grant goes towards that. Oh, I want to go back to the sex magic. They become the first people to actually theorize how to get to the moon. Huh. Like, theorize it in a way that could actually be... Could, yeah, not just, hey, we can go to the moon. They're like, no, this here's, is how we can get to the moon. Here's my giant chalkboard of yeah. formulas. Okay. In February of 1941, Jack and Helen are initiated into the Agape Lodge. Good! Good for them! And Helen's 16-year-old sister, Betty, moves in with them. Oh, no. All of the meetings now start happening at Jack's house. No! <laughs> Jack becomes pen pals with Aleister Crowley. <laughs> I'm never not going to laugh about that. <laughs> <laughs> he addresses him as most beloved father and signs his letters as thy son. A lot of these letters have survived, and I have pulled a lot of quotes from them. Yay! Unless they're about the 16-year-old, then... Boo. In 1942, the trio found the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. In June of 1942, Jack leases a mansion on Millionaire's Mile. He's back, baby. Great. The Agape Lodge moves there. Oh, no. The temple is Jack's bedroom. <laughs> and they start calling it the Parsonage. A lot of the conservative rich people in the area do not like them, do not like what's going on. They start renting rooms to undesirables. One of the ads read, apartments for rent must not believe in God. <laughs> oh my gosh, what newspaper ran that? <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> oh, I love it. Crowley writes a letter to Jack praising his work in America, what he's doing there. I don't think he's talking about the rockets. And asks for his latest donation. Oh no. Oh no. Jack Parsons has become one of Aleister Crowley's main sources of income. <sighs> that's the dude we're dealing with here. Actually, that's not the kind of donation I was expecting you to say. Oh, no. We're talking about money. Okay, fine then. Who cares? Now in Pasadena, there are rumors that he is in a cult. But other well-respected scientists say, no, he's not. He's fine. They were also involved in the cult. <gasps> Good. <laughs> there was an investigation that went in about there's a story of a pregnant woman who jumped nine times over a fire. Okay. <laughs> you, ugh, that's crazy. You can't do that. I mean, how pregnant? I was doing yoga until I was just about to give birth, so. I mean, I'm pretty sure I could have hopped over a little fire nine times. In service to Satan? I could have. I'm not in service to anyone, though, so sure. sorry, Satan. There are some other crimes that are not fun to talk about that we won't talk about. They get investigated for that, but because some of the people that are going to these Gnostic masses Wait. are bank presidents, doctors, judges... Hollywood actors. Of course. It's a sex party. So nothing ever comes of any of the investigations. Of course. They're all rich. But they were getting investigated because of a pregnant woman jumping over a fire? Right. Well, that's conservative rich people. Don't like weird stuff happening in their neighborhood. 
tell me you don't think that all those rich people that are part of this cult aren't conservative. No, part of this cult, yeah. But the people who are living around Millionaire's Mile clearly didn't like it because they called the cops on them. Aerojet is making $650,000 a year in okay. 1942. That's like $17 quadrillion. That's kind of how I am feeling about these numbers. Oh, if there's thunder. Yeah. Because of the occult. <laughs> Not because of hurricane season? Nope, because of the occult. Because that pregnant lady's jumping over fires? Speaking of pregnant ladies, the high priest Wilfred Smith and Helen have been participating in the sex magic. Yes. And she bears him a son. Jack is, of course, to nobody's surprise, uh, having, you know, sex magic with Betty, the younger sister. And Helen and Jack get a divorce. Jack would later write that the implied incest with Betty was very appealing. Ew. Ew. Don't write that down. Jack encourages Betty to take many lovers, as he will, because he is above the petty jealousies of this mortal plane. But they got divorced because they were... No, Helen got divorced. He's with Betty now. Oh, Betty's the 16-year-old? Yes. Probably not at this point, but... She's she's a full 17 now? Yeah. But no, Helen also had other lovers. The high priest, she had a baby with him. Yes, I know. But Wilfred Smith, the high priest, Helen, Jack, and Betty are all still living there at the parsonage together. Okay. The rest of the house, people that live there, are starting to think the elementals that Jack is into are bad juju. There's bad spirits going on here. We're winding down World War II, so the future of rocketry is in flux. Nobody's quite sure, because there's no war, we don't know what we're going to do about it. Just wait. We got plenty of wars for you. So Aerojet is trying to get bought out, but the employees of Aerojet want Parsons and Foreman bought out. And they are both bought out for $50,000 each. And Parsons and Foreman are like, yeah, <laughs> we made it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> they think they're the lucky ones getting out before the rocketry collapses. They form an explosives company called Ad Astra Research that gets investigated for espionage. It turns out that they just had large amounts of X-nitrate, a very powerful explosive, just for funsies. Well, yeah, don't you? No. <laughs> Aerojet changes their name to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So that is the founding of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But we're going to stick with Jack Parsons for a little bit because it's freaking great. One of the uh, residents of the Parsonage brings a friend of his over, a science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard. (laughs) Yes! Bring on the Scientology! On January 4th, 1946, Jack Parsons writes to Aleister Crowley, Most beloved father. No gross. About three months ago, I met Captain L. Ron Hubbard, (laughs) a writer and explorer of whom I had known for some time. He is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, and is honest and intelligent. And we have become great friends. He moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affections to him. Yep. Although Ron has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of understanding and experience in the field. For some of his experiences, I believe he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair whom he calls Empress and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. So they believe in guardian angels, but not God? I don't know. Sure. Why not? 
Okay. Now that Betty is hanging out with old Elrond, Jack starts to get obsessed with creating himself an elemental mate and starts performing rituals. Oh, gross. He wants to bring about a goddess on Earth called Babylon because they're super original. He's performing all these rituals by himself. Of course, the rituals are obviously sex magic. He's performing sex magic by himself in front of everybody. Oh, in front of everybody? Yeah, this is a group thing. This is, this is a group. Okay. Group event. Whatever. <laughs> it's better than sleeping with a 16-year-old as a grown-up. Yeah. One night he evokes twice. Ew. Goes to bed, hears nine knocks, and the next morning he wakes up and there's a shattered lamp on the floor. I just don't like that they're calling it evokes. Him and Elrond Hubbard head out to the desert for magic and visions. Do you think they were lovers? No. Elrond, and this is a this is from uh, another letter to Alistair Crowley, had a vision that evening of a savage and beautiful woman riding naked on a great cat-like beast. We prepared magically for this communication, constructing a temple at the altar. He was robed in white, carrying a lamp, and I in black hooded with a cup and dagger. February 23rd, 1946, in another letter. I have my elemental. She turned up one night after the conclusion of the magic and has been with me, although she does go back to New York next week. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh my gosh, the mental gymnastics these men are going through to make any of this make sense. She is my elemental. I have created her from my body. And also she lives in New York and is visiting for a little while. Now, obviously this was not an elemental. This is a woman named Marjorie Elizabeth Cameron. It's not an elemental? People call her Candy. Okay. So, Candy Cameron. Candace Cameron? Yep. Uh, And she becomes his magical partner. Okay. Then Jack, Elrond, and Betty form a company called Allied Enterprises with $1,000 from Elrond Hubbard, $0 from Betty, and $21,000 from Jack Parsons. Sounds, sounds great. The point of the company is to buy boats on the East Coast and sell them on the West Coast. Sure. Fine. <laughs> okay. I'm with Betty here. <laughs> Put no money into it? Yes. In April of 1946, Elrond takes Betty and $10,000 to Florida. <laughs> and later that month, Jack starts suspecting something might be off. Maybe. I don't know. But he calls Elrond, and everything gets smoothed over. Everything's fine. By June... <sighs> Jack starts getting suspicious again. He goes to Florida and finds out that they have bought three boats. He finds two of them, but not the Harpoon, Elrond, or Betty. The Harpoon sets sail after he finds it. Jack goes back to his hotel room and consecrates a circle. Consecrates a circle? With his solo sex magic. Great. (laughs) Nothing like seeing a boat take off. (laughs) <laughs> in, in a letter to Alistair Crowley, here I am in Miami pursuing the children of my folly. Hubbard attempted to escape me by sailing at 5 p.m. I performed a full invocation to Bartzabel within the circle at 8 p.m. At the time, so far as I can check, his ship is struck by a sudden squall off the coast which has ripped off his sails and forced him to come back to port where I took the boat into custody. I have them well tied up. They cannot move without going to jail. However, most of the money has been dissipated. I'll be lucky to salvage three to five thousand dollars. In the interim, I am flat broke. Did that storm actually happen? L. Ron Hubbard is just a horrible sailor. Well, yes. (laughs) You look at his history, and yeah, he's a terrible sailor. That's what happened. He set sail. He's a terrible sailor. Screwed something up. 
and had to come back. I do know that because I spent a whole summer listening to Scientology books and podcasts. And Now, in order for Elrond to not get charges pressed on him, Betty threatens Jack with pressing charges on him since they started their relationship when she was a minor. Okay. Ron then <laughs> marries Betty, who is now going by Sarah. What? I'm changing my name. <laughs> Why have I not changed my name a million times by now? Elron Hubbard was still married to his wife, Polly, at the time. Oh. Four years later, he starts Scientology. Still married to both the women? I don't know. I'm not paying attention to him much at this point. <laughs> He's out of Jack Parsons' life. Although he does, in a biography, say that he infiltrated and destroyed black magic in America. L. Ron Hubbard said he said infiltrated he, and destroyed black magic in America? Yep. Said he destroyed it so thoroughly that it has never made a return. What year did he say that? Because then the Satanic Panic happened and it was all made up too, but... He said that in like 1950, early 50s. Jack at this point gets various jobs, strays away from the magic. But Not... why? It worked! <laughs> well, he's broke. <laughs> he's broke. Doesn't believe in it anymore. In May of 1948, he loses his government clearance for being in a cult at one point. Although his FBI file says it's because of his associations with known communists. Oh, God. He's, it's probably that. Yeah, he's a victim of early McCarthyism. I'm not going to feel bad for him, though. This guy is wild and has gotten too many breaks. Candy leaves him. He starts fixing cars, pumping gas. He's a hospital assistant at one point. He's getting low down. He starts performing magic again with various sex workers and whoever he can pick up. He gets a job at Hughes Aircraft Company, as in Howard Hughes. <sighs> starts giving reports to Israeli power brokers planning to go to Israel to build rockets for them. He gets, he gets investigated again, and in 1950, he gets fired by the Hughes Aircraft Company. But Candy comes back to him. He builds a home, he builds a home lab. His clearance is permanently revoked in 1952, and he plans to just move to Mexico with Candy. She was in an artist commune down there. Ugh, that sounds great. I'm gonna go. Bye. Forget if I said he built a home lab at this point. He built a home lab. He's been doing like pyrotechnics work for movies. Okay. He gets a call for a rush job. Hey, we need you to do this. We need you to blow something up real quick. As he's planning to go. So he's got, okay, I'll, I'll stay. June 17th, 1952, he does a rush order and there's an explosion. Does he blow himself up? He blows himself up. Jack Parsons is now dead. At the age of 37. All of that happened? Oh my god. He was 37. <laughs> he had done all of this. I've wasted my life. We've done no magic. I did magic. We I had a ghost. We haven't blown anybody up. I haven't blown anybody up. We didn't create rockets in the 40s. Nope. I did exactly zilch in the 40s. That is how JPL was founded. And now we get to look at JPL at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> Greetings, listeners, domestic, international, and extraterrestrial. I'm Dave Reed. And I'm Kristen Riley, and this is The Cast Files. I am a nerd who somehow never saw The X-Files. And I watched it when it originally aired. The Cast Files is a podcast where we watch and discuss every episode of The X-Files spoiler-free. Today we are talking about Season 1, Episode 9, Space. It originally aired November 12th. 
1993 to a viewership of 10.7 million people. It was written by Chris Carter and directed by William Graham. It's his first episode directing. I've never seen his name before. Oh. And later on, I'll tell you why. I don't think I'm going to see it again. Is he an heir to the Graham Cracker fortune? I think he is the great-grand-nephew of Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No? That's not how last names work. It's not? Okay. (laughs) I like how I paused. Well. I like how you believed it for a second. (laughs) It was pretty fun. That's how this episode's going to (laughs) go. So, David, what is your overall feeling of this episode? (sighs) I have lots of feelings on this episode. Uh, We'll get into most of them as we go, because they're specific. Yes, but can you sum it up in one sentence? Thumbs down. (laughs) All right, so the summary of this is, when a space shuttle mission is sabotaged, Mulder suspects that it might be the work of an evil extraterrestrial spirit that inhabits the body of a former Gemini astronaut. Where'd you get that? From Hulu. Because that's a terrible description. He never suspects that until the very end. Well, I would like to say that I did not write that myself. That is everything else I wrote except for the quotes, obviously. But that is what the description said on Hulu. That's a terrible description, Hulu. Shame on you. I figured I was going to start pulling the Hulu descriptions. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. (laughs) And then we can dissect them and tell them stupid Hulu. That's bad. Bad description. (laughs) Are you slapping Hulu's hand? I am. Okay, you ready to get into it? Yes. So, scene one, we are at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Oh, JPL, how I love your history. It's 1977. That's when I became a thing. Oh, it is when you became a thing. I was not yet a thing. (laughs) Or was I an extraterrestrial ghost person? That would be hard for me to deal with, finding that out at this point. Why? What would it change if in 1977 I was an extraterrestrial ghost person? So we get the bottom third sometimes, and then sometimes we jump from time to time without acknowledging the time-space continuum. (laughs) Not knowing how much time has passed. It's... I wish they'd be consistent. It's interesting because we were talking about this when we were watching it, and there's been a couple of episodes where they just don't do the lower third at all. Mm -hmm. And then there's others where they will maybe tell us where they're at, but not the time difference. And then there's other episodes where they tell us the time and the place and everything. Those are good. I I like those. Yes. So those directors, I'm I'm guessing it's a director call. One would think, yeah. So, or an editor. That might be the editor. Oh. I wonder if they're all edited by the same person. Guess you're going to have to look at that. Guess so. Okay. So we're in 1977. The first scene is inside the JPL. There's a 70s television reporter, and here's what she says. I'm here in Pasadena with the NASA mission control team as they celebrate scientific history. The first close-up photographic transmissions of Mars from the Viking Observer spacecraft. Photos that have created something of a stir by revealing surprising geologic information. The presence of large amounts of water locked in Mars's polar ice caps. Water that some speculate could have possibly sustained life on the planet. Even more controversial is one image of a land formation, a formation that looks like a sculpted human face. However, NASA officials are denying it is an indication of an alien civilization. Yeah, that's a good denial. Yeah. Why would that be a thing? (laughs) Oh, just wait. I've got something for you. So then we cut to Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Aurelius Belt. Is that right? Aurelius? Yeah, Marcus Aurelius, just like the Caesar. 
Ugh. Okay. We cut to Lieutenant Colonel Marcus Aurelius Belt, the Viking Orbiter Project Director. We get a title for him. Mumbling his dissenting opinion of the story that it's simply a trick of the light. And I'm going to prove him correct. Okay. Because we'll tweet these out. But I wanted to show you, I don't know if you've seen these. So here's the original photo of the face on Mars. Okay. From and the movie? I mean, from the TV show? From real life. Oh, okay. This is a real thing. That was a big thing in the UFO community because there's a face on Mars. And sometime in like 2017, 2015-ish, we took high resolution photos of the face on Mars. And that's what it is. It didn't. It did not age well. It didn't. It did not age well, but it looks great in high def. That one is awesome. Man, it's also low resolution. That's what it actually looks like. I don't have anything to say because obviously. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so, but we'll we'll tweet that out so you guys can see it too. Later, after all of the celebration and the reporters and all of this. Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Belt is dreaming of a space trip. He's outside the spaceship speaking to Houston while something is, and he yells this, coming at me, holy God! Holy God! The amount that this Belt guy yells in this episode. Ugh. Now we return to present day. Present day Belt is a... Oh, no, that's not present day. That's still the past. Oh, you when know he what? Has, when he has sleep paralysis. Yes, okay. So I messed this up because I say present day in my notes, but it's actually present day for this shot, which is present day is 1977. So Colonel Belt's dream is him as a young man astronaut. Yeah. And then present day is him back in 1977, <laughs> where a blurry picture of a face that could go for seven figures on eBay <laughs> with the right tagline becomes 3D and swoops towards him as he screams. Yeah, he straight up just has sleep paralysis. Yeah, but I did the eBay thing because we, as Americans, love to have our Cheeto Jesuses. And <laughs> Who doesn't love a Cheeto Jesus? And croissant Jesuses, mostly Jesus. They all take a backseat to Plastic Jesus. I agree. There was another one that came out. Oh, it was a chicken nugget that was, what's that little game where somebody in your group is the murderer among us? Oh, yeah. So I there was an that. Among Us chicken nugget that went for some absurd amount of money. Yeah. So I feel like this face on Mars really could have gotten him some money. It probably got somebody some money. So now we're actually in present day. Present day, present day. 1993 present day. <laughs> <laughs> We are at the Shuttle Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. I've been there. Have you been there? I have been there. Did we go together? No. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember. I know Riley was there. Really the important thing. We see a lot of stock footage. This is a NASA shuttle is going to launch. We see real stock footage. We see stock footage projected on a projection screen. And if you noticed, it was shaking. So they didn't stabilize the table that the projector was on when it was beaming <laughs> it up against the wall. And we also see inside the command center. I have notes about the stock footage too. Okay. I guess I'll bring that up now. Yeah, go ahead. I love how it's so blurry. The TV show itself, apparently they upscaled it for Hulu or whatever. So it's not, you know, quite high def, but it still looks fairly decent. But the stock footage looks terrible. It really, yeah. It's so bad. bad. And I, I just noticed it every time. It was, <laughs> it was, 
It was distracting. It was really bad. I also have some trivia about this particular piece of the show. It says that although the series made use of a good amount of inexpensive stock footage, shocking, right, from NASA, the construction of the command center set was subject to cost overruns. Oh, wow. Leading the episode to become the most expensive of the first season. Oh, that is a tragedy. It was just the command center. Oh, that caused this to be the most expensive. That's rough. I mean, it obviously wasn't the alien ghost. <laughs> what do you mean? That that thing looked amazing. Me. Me in 1977. Ghost, ghost baby me. <laughs> we see all of that, and then we go to the Houston Mission Control, and something goes wrong. They abort liftoff. Three seconds to launch. There's a lot of... This, this whole part takes about a quarter of the episode with all of their NASA jargon, but... I didn't need feel the need to include all of it because <laughs> nothing's happening. No, just something goes wrong. So then two weeks later, we're in Washington, D.C. Mulder received an anonymous message. As he and Scully start to think it's a prank, they meet Michelle Gennaro. Gennaro? Gennaro. 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 Apparently, this is a covert meeting. She brought a briefcase with evidence. Uh, she believes that there may be a saboteur at work inside NASA. And immediately, everybody went, oh, it's that belt guy. He did it. Yep, because he did. Because they opened with him. And he did. <laughs> why would they not? Ugh. Why would, it, why would it not be him after? All of that? Yeah. Gennaro can't go to NASA because she believes it's something otherworldly or unexplained. She thinks it's something extra. So, obviously, Mulder. Yeah. She believes in the space program and the people who run it. She makes good note that she believes in her job and everybody else doing their job. But she is suspicious and concerned because there's another launch window tomorrow. Wonder why she waited so long to clue anybody in? Me too! And <laughs> I also wrote, it's okay that she's sneaking around because she's doing it for love. Oh, I thought she was doing it for God and country. Nope. Just She love. isn't patriotic. She doesn't care about any of the other astronauts? She does. Or the space program itself? Mm, she doesn't say love and country. God and country. Oh. God, Did I just become a God, country God, song? God, guns, and country. <laughs> no, she's not the patriotic one, though. She's doing it for love because her fiancé's on that ship. I give her a little more credit. I think she's doing it because it's the right thing to do. That's not how they set up this scene. I'm talking about this scene. Okay. And we'll also get into this about why Belt is everything wrong with America. <laughs> okay. And she is not. Okay. <laughs> the next day, we're in Houston at the Space Center. So obviously this is launch day. So now everything's lasted way too long. And they have zero amount of time to stop a space shuttle mission. Right. Because those are notoriously easy to... Actually, they are easy to stop. Yeah. Now that I think about it. They're, they're hard to actually go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I think I see a cloud over there. <laughs> Cancel it. The amount of times that they pushed back the, the launch time of the one shuttle that I went to see live, we waited six hours past original launch time because of things like cloud yeah. and wind going wrong way <laughs> seagull yes it was really cool once it launched but it was we listened to the radio because they anybody who hasn't seen one it's a really cool experience and if you're in florida or houston 
and get the opportunity, I would say do it. It's cool to see. I remember seeing them all the time when I was a kid. Not them actually launch, but once they would go over in the sky. I've never seen a launch. I tried to go see a launch once, but failed to note that it was supposed to be p.m. and not a.m. Ah. That was bad. But I have seen going to work in the mornings when it's still dark. You can see weird stuff up in the sky day of launch. Like, yes. And that, that lasts for hours. Yes. It's really cool looking. It is very cool. And that's why people think UFOs exist. Right. But if you are going to a launch and you get the time right, it doesn't matter because it's still going to be delayed a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) So that's not it. But you can listen to them actually on the radio talking to the shuttle Yeah. on your own car radio. That's really cool. It's really cool. So I absolutely think anybody who gets the opportunity, take it. It's cool. Well, they don't launch shuttles anymore. With payloads, they do? Not shuttles. Rockets, then. Rockets, yeah. Okay, mine was a rocket that I saw. Oh, okay. They're launching stuff into space with with (laughs) people. It's fine. A cat, a dog, a fish, a frog. Yep, all of them. It's rude. All right, so Mulder and Scully visit Houston. Mulder spouts some stuff. Basically, he wants it to be aliens. You never wanted to be an astronaut when you were a kid, Scully? Scully says, no, I must have missed that phase. And I also said, David, did you want to be an astronaut? I don't remember what I said. I think you said no. I actually don't remember what you said either, because I think after that I said, you're David, and he's David, and then the fiancé's name is David. (laughs) I'm David. You're David. Oh, David. (laughs) You're bothering Charlie. She's trying to sleep in the box. Well, she doesn't pay rent. She doesn't, but she keeps the ceiling grandmas at bay. (laughs) She does. I never wanted to be an astronaut. I don't see the point. (laughs) I do. I like it. I think other people should be astronauts. Yes. I don't see why I would need to be an astronaut. I would rather find out what's going on here. So it turns out that Mulder is a fan of Lieutenant Colonel Belt, having stayed up all night to watch his spacewalk when he was 14. So Mulder, this is another episode where Mulder is fanboying. Yep. Or being lost in his childhood. It's another childhood Mulder episode. Yeah. Oh, it very much is. So they're talking to Lieutenant Colonel Belt, and Scully shows the photo evidence that she got from Jenneru the day before. He doesn't like it. He accuses Scully of not having respect for the people involved in the space program. And I'm How like, dare you. Belt has one of those... Oh, <laughs> this is another thing that I noticed. Belt has one of those sticky murals that I had in my teenage bedroom. <laughs> His is Galaxy. Yeah. Mine was a... Lisa Frank. No, mine was a beach with a palm tree because uh. <laughs> when I had it, I was living in the basement of our house in uh, right outside of Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, yeah. Where it's just gray, where everything's gray. And so I had a sticky mural just like just like this astronaut dude just like if you watch that scene you can see where the panels have been stuck to the wall i believe mine was stuck on the wall better than this one was stuck (laughs) on the wall oh no props to the prop department sorry guys scully asks lieutenant colonel belt to postpone the mission belt doesn't like that either he's been waiting two weeks for a window to deliver this payload come on scully have some respect yeah for real (laughs) so this is another reason why i say lieutenant colonel belt is america you got to deliver the payload no matter what well people are sabotaging this whole thing and people might die doesn't matter gotta do it for the monies the molder in this scene he cannot sit still he's fidgeting the whole time he's so excited to be around an astronaut i thought it was pretty good i wasn't watching him Uh, i was well of course i was (laughs) 
<laughs> You're fanboying over Mulder, fanboying over Lieutenant <laughs> yeah, Colonel Bell. I sure was. I guess it was, they're like on a cart, like a golf cart thing, on their way to him, I guess. Yeah. When Mulder is talking about, you know, people who might want to sabotage the space program, and he goes through a list. Never mentions the Flat Earthers, which definitely should be at the top of the list. They would definitely want to sabotage oh, I anything. Didn't, I didn't think about that. That's the one line that I summed up that whole scene with was Mulder <laughs> says some stuff and wants it to be aliens. <laughs> yeah. And he mentions that Hubble telescope being wonky is people trying to stop evidence. And Scully says, evidence of what? And the, come on, Scully. What do you what do you think he's gonna say? <laughs> Sorry, I blew past that with my one sentence summary of that scene. Yeah, that's fine. It's just come on, Scully. <laughs> Mulder asks if they can watch the launch for mission control. Belt grants permission after making a snarky remark about how they'd probably go over his head anyway. <laughs> yeah. This is another reason why I made my initial comment. This guy his ego is so big. He's not letting anything come between him and his notoriety and his mission, no matter what. He's got a job to do. He'd probably go over my head anyway. Yeah, probably would. You know what? That was my next stop. <laughs> I don't know where over your head is. But <laughs> I don't either. I'm gonna go there. Speaking of which. Is we... it Neil deGrasse Tyson probably? <laughs> he grants you access to the control room in Houston. Yep. <laughs> Anything to do with space. Of course. It's, it's just him. In 1993, how yeah. popular was he? Not very. <laughs> Scully and Mulder go to speak to the tech guy after they leave Lieutenant Colonel Belt's office. This guy has never seen the evidence. He didn't order the analysis. He knows nothing about it. He's just a subcontractor to NASA. When Scully asks if this is something that would cause a launch to be postponed, he says there's about 17,000 things that can go wrong with a launch. It's a lot of things. It's too many things. It's a it's a lot. See, back to why I didn't want to be an astronaut. It, I don't see the point. That's too many things. His team, he says that his team makes a recommendation based on the analysis and anything anything that happens that could cause problems or issues or things to not run smoothly in any way, but informs Scully that it's not them who gets to make the decision. It's Lieutenant Colonel Belt that has the final say on everything. What I'm not surprised. Which is where I come back to, he could have stopped this. He did not try to stop this. He has the final say on everything. Because he's possessed by an alien ghost. <sighs> the alien ghost has the final say on everything. Scully asks Mulder if he thinks the x-ray evidence is bogus, and Mulder says, God, I hope so. He really did. I felt it. And now we're at launch. Yeah. Because, shocking, waiting until the day before a launch... <laughs> you're not going to get it to stopped. ...to try to stop a launch when you're not even in the same city or state isn't enough time. So we're back in the control room, and there's lots of tech talk. I wonder how the writers of this one felt about literal rocket science when the writers of Ghost in the Machine hated writing about computers. <laughs> well, the writer of this one was Chris Carter. So I imagine he is into space and NASA and stuff. He created the TV show about aliens. You did say it was Chris Carter. Okay. I was just curious because they hated Ghost in the Machine so much. They said that was the worst yeah. <laughs> of season one. This whole episode is literally NASA talk that has been taken from snippets of radio conversations. <laughs> so countdown begins. Liftoff happens, and we see footage on a bunch of screens. At 1 minute 30 seconds left to launch, mm -hmm. some dude saunters over to his desk and sits down. Where were you, dude? 
There's a minute and a half left to a shuttle launch, and you're just at the vending machine? He needed to pee after all that coffee. Unacceptable. You wait a minute and a half. Oh, you think that's bad? I do. Wait until you hear what Lieutenant Colonel Belt does. <laughs> also, this is where I was going to bring up the Kennedy Space Center. Because when you went, did you do the launch simulation? I don't know what got over me when I did that, but I got all up in my feelings during that thing. The room shakes and they're like, we have liftoff. And they're all excited. I'm yeah! <laughs> I was like, this is an accomplishment for all humankind! This is amazing! And it, it, re- it really got it. It really got to me. Well, congratulations to whoever designed that. Yeah. I guess it didn't have the same effect with you, apparently. No. Yeah. I thought it was wonderful. I didn't say it wasn't wonderful. It just was wonderful in the moment, and then I was done with it. And I have not thought of it since you, <laughs> since until this moment when you brought it up. I guess maybe for a moment in time you wanted to be an astronaut. No, I didn't want to be an astronaut. I was just very happy that humans did this thing going to space i feel like is a it's a major accomplishment for humans yes but then i think of all the space junk up there oh yeah going there is a major accomplishment leaving a bunch of garbage is very human very bad it's very human of us sending up thousands and thousands of satellites for a privately run business is something that the united states government should not be letting elon musk do i agree i hate that guy I think he is what is wrong with this country. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Belt looks around. Everyone's clapping. This is after the launch. Mulder gives him the thumbs up because he's still fanboying. Woo! And Scully just looks bored. <laughs> There's a launch. She's there for it. She's just like, okay. Yeah, I don't understand how you couldn't be excited for this. So I did say that I couldn't remember doing this the space simulation, but I would be emotional if I had been there and watched all of this happen. And yes, I have a lot of feelings. And so they would have all been triggered at that point. (laughs) (laughs) They would have all gone to 11. After an indeterminate amount of time, we're walking through a hotel lobby. Janeru, Janeru runs and yells after them. Mulder specifically, she's yelling, Mulder! Something has happened to the shuttle. Everyone went home, and when Jinneru got back, she discovered that something was wrong. Which I feel like is a thing that they could have alerted her to, even if she wasn't there, because phones exist. Do they now? She said that she went back home to change, so they could have just called her at home. Even in 1993? Yes, because we see in Lieutenant Colonel Belt's apartment that is actually a hotel room. <laughs> yeah. The I noticed the phone. It's just, it's a very 1993 phone. It's actually like a 1989 phone. <laughs> so phones did exist back then. They did. Yeah, they were very good. large. <laughs> she tells them that they must go back to Houston. So I don't know where they're at right now. She just means the command center. Oh, you know what? I had this whole argument with myself on Wednesday. You're right. They all drive in a zero-viz storm. Jenneru drives on her own, and Mulder and Scully follow. Mulder is driving, Scully's in the passenger seat, and Scully's navigating. She said, oh, she's turning up here. Which is great, because honestly, you can't see anything in this storm. Yeah, but they all know how to get there, so it doesn't seem like you need to follow her that closely. That's true. The spooky face we saw bothering Belt shows up and spooks Jinneru. And I write, there's a car wreck, question mark? 
because in this scene, the camera work is the work that the X-Files loves to do, where it shakes and turns upside down, and there's swirling, zooming, fisheye lens, cartwheeling across the scene, and then it cuts to commercial. So I was like, I guess there was a car wreck. <laughs> there was an alien ghost. It's raining a lot. Then we come back from commercial, and I say, okay, definitely a wreck. Her car flips. She's stuck but screaming, so we know she's alive. And she says that she's wedged in so she can't climb out herself. Mulder crawls through the window to help pull her out. This is my favorite scene of this whole episode. <laughs> Scully tells her not to move as she continues crawling out from under the car and then turns around and then sits up against the car. Don't move. So she's done, she's turned herself in a bunch of different directions. And then she stands up and Mulder helps walk her to the car. But don't move. Yes. So this is also one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> okay, why? Because the rain was kind enough to stop immediately yes. as soon as there was a car wreck. It was the it was the opposite of episode one, where the rain just flips on. Yes. And this one, the rain flips off. It's great. It just turns off. I don't think that there was very much direction given by William Graham in this, because Jinneru is just, Help me! Get me out of here! Help me! And Mulder is saying some stuff and eventually gets to the point where he goes, okay, all right. <laughs> so, so I don't think there was much of a script. I think it was just, you want to get out, you guys do stuff. <laughs> and David Duchovny got tired of listening to her. Oh, wow. Well, at least it wasn't pouring rain because it could have been worse and he would have been in an even worse mood. Yeah. It's like the actors did not know what to do. No. Nobody was listening to anybody. No. <laughs> they all arrive at Houston. The guy on the radio does notice that Jenneru has blood all over her head and asks what happened to her, which I thought was nice. Especially since she tells him she was in a wreck and he doesn't stop or do anything. They just get back to work because she, the way she says it, she's like, I was in a wreck. No big deal. Let's go. Everybody's professional here. So that's great. Someone's messing with the telemetry. And they keep pronouncing it wrong and it was driving me crazy. What were they saying? Telemetry? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I wanted to scream at him. This is why Okaboji was spelled differently in the script. Uh, so they say, so they knew how to say it? Yeah. Genero asks if they can trace the, the whoever's messing with the telemetry. The radio guy says it's in the basement. And I wrote, so it's got to be Lieutenant Colonel Bell, right? But then I looked up and he was actually in this scene because I was typing so much <laughs> that I didn't realize <laughs> he was in the scene. Was he in the scene? Mm-hmm. He was just there. Hmm. The three of them go to the basement. The lights go out. Some guy is hiding in a corner, which makes sense because they have guns. Yeah. Speaking of they have guns. This is your favorite segment. Oh my God. It's so frustrating. <laughs> Scully's got her gun pointed up, which, okay. Mulder's just pointing his gun straight out at everybody's face. <laughs> He's just walking around one hand like this. <laughs> Pointing at people. Just pointing it right at everybody's face. And I want to strangle somebody. <sighs> That's why I was sitting on the floor, not the couch next to you. <laughs> oh. I hope in season two they hire a gun safety person. Because these actors, clearly David Duchovny has never held a real gun at this point in his life. I don't know. I didn't know him in 1993. 
I couldn't ask. <laughs> you were so disappointed. That's so frustrating. Uh, the guy turns out that he works there and has clearance. They check his clearance. Then I say, oh, it's not Belt. He's in the command room. <laughs> so <laughs> this is literally me typing as I'm watching. And the continuity <sighs> person uh, was wrong on this one because suddenly when they cut back to David Duchovny, he has no gun. Oh, yes. So maybe he lost his gun since they like to do that too. It's where Scully's gun went in squeeze, and it's where all of our straws keep going. <laughs> Eventually it will turn up. Hopefully. From somewhere, wherever it is. Someone's jamming the transmission. The shuttle will burn up. There's a lot of talk about what's going to happen with messing with the telemetry. Belt wants to save them. Jenneru doesn't like this idea because it's risky and could cost their lives. They're going to give control of the piloting to the astronauts. Which seems like, why don't they have control of the piloting? They're astronauts. I have no idea. I always thought that was always. I always thought in the last five days since we've watched this episode twice. I understand that maybe seeding total control over is not the way that they normally do it because so many things could, 17,000 things could go wrong. So you want to have two people have control. So I could see, I guess I could see that. But do the astronauts have no control at all? Unless mission control, it's mission control, not space shuttle control. I have no idea. Or rename your building. Well, is that really the name of the building? Or no, is it's that the just command what you center. think it is? It's the command center. That's still where you're just making the rules, not driving the shuttle. Do you drive a shuttle? Do when you land it. I think you puppeteer a shuttle. You're right. All right. Jenneru transmits the new plan that they're going to actually let the astronauts do something to her fiance. And I had forgotten about their relationship up to this point because I like the idea that she's simply a competent NASA worker, but whatever, love. <laughs> Things get tense. Then the shuttle makes contact again and everyone cheers. Lieutenant Colonel Belt checks in with the astronauts. It's a nice scene. Until he goes to the bathroom and looks at himself weirdly. He's got a lot going on. I still don't understand this scene. Yeah, me neither. Okay. Then they go to a press conference, which is a scene I do understand. The only scene I don't understand is the bathroom scene. Maybe he was looking for the bathroom troll. That's what it was. The <laughs> look in, at himself in the mirror was him realizing, how did I get this far into the bathroom without having to say a riddle? I think you're dead on. At the press conference, Jenneru tells Scully and Mulder that Belt didn't know his idea would work because Scully's like, are you sure that he knew? And she said, no, he had no idea. They could have all died. Everybody could have died. Everybody would be dead. But it was imperative that the payload be delivered or else. And here's the best part of all of this. Congress would shut NASA down. Yeah, that's not likely. Belt tells the press, as of 22 hours, the crew has been conducting onboard tests and tasks and resting up for their first full day in space tomorrow. I'm happy to say, after a beautiful night launch, the shuttle orbiter has performed magnificently. And this is when Mulder realizes you should never meet your heroes. He's very sad about it. He's just, this whole time, he's just adorable. So sad. He was so worried in the scene before where they were all tense and he was like, oh no. And then he's so sad in this one. And after the press conference, Mulder chases Belt down a hallway and asks why he lied to the press. Or he's going to ask and Belt guesses that he's going to ask. Belt does the you risk your life every time you get into your spacecraft for nothing more than the good progress of mankind speech. And you know what? I understand his grievance early in the space program. Early in the space program, I'm with him. Basically, Belt is salty about astronauts not being famous anymore. So not only for the, the good progress of mankind then. Yeah, pretty much. Like literally right now is when you're admitting that it's your goddamn ego. They put not. us on the back page of the paper. 
We do this for the good of mankind. Why are we not famous? Name two astronauts on the last shuttle. Uh, Joe Schmendrick yep. and Billy Bendrick. Yep. <laughs> good job. See, you should have been in that scene. All right, so now we're at Bill's apartment, which is actually a hotel room. He's drinking vodka out of the bottle. He lays down on the bed and then flashes back to the previous space scene. And now his face is turning into a ghostly extraterrestrial version of the Edward Monk's screen. <laughs> or the face of Mars. Oh, yes, or the face of Mars. The ghost thing leaves his body and flies out the window. Like Peter Pan's shadow, he needs Wendy Darling to catch it and sew it back to him. Oh, that's a good interpretation, because my interpretation was he floats out of his body out the window and goes, I bring you peace. <laughs> I bring you love. And then Lily says, it's breaking love, breaking his legs so he can't escape. <laughs> this looks like Mr. Burns from that episode of The Simpsons. Obviously, Belt's shadow person is heading to space. Why? What is this thing trying to stop? Is it all the space junk we leave? Is it an eco-alien? Am I on its side? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like this, this episode. <laughs> okay, now we're back at Houston Mission Control. We're checking in with the shuttle in orbit. They called a Houston that there was a thump, then another thump, and I guess this ghost can hit things? Well, it can definitely affect things because it sabotaged that one part that they showed <laughs> earlier. <laughs> that one shuttle part. Yeah, the shuttle part that has an x-ray in order to see it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and Houston uh, Mission Control identifies a gas leak. It's the same issue that happened when Belt was in space way back when the scene that he, as a young Young man astronaut, which is what I called him before, <laughs> yeah. uh, when he was possessed by the extraterrestrial ghost alien. Yep, when it lived in him. A dumb premise. <laughs> uh, so it's the same issue that happened to Belt way back then, the mission that he keeps flashing back to, and apparently the one he became haunted during. They're walking down the hallway doing the, the old Aaron Sorkin walk and talk. Scully says something about how they're running out of oxygen. Even I know what's going to happen then. Even you? You're a doctor. <laughs> it's not it's not something that you should be unaware of. Right. As a doctor, what happens when a person runs out of oxygen? You start breathing CO2? Helium. And then your voice gets really high. Probably CO2 and then you die. Yeah, I know. I actually know what happens. Okay, well, you're not a doctor, so I didn't expect you to. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> Jenneru is trying to handle the issue while Scully and Mulder go look for Belt, who should have been there 90 minutes ago to deliver the payload. So this is where we're flashing back to the guy who showed up a minute 30 before the space <laughs> shuttle launch. Yeah. You didn't like that he was doing whatever at that time? Yeah, well, Mr. Belt has decided he's going to just peace out for a full 90 minutes during this shuttle <laughs> mission. Oh, yeah. This very important shuttle mission. So Mulder and Scully do go and find Belt. He's at his apartment looking like he drank that entire bottle of vodka last night. He's sweaty. He's breathing hard. He's late for his job that actually impacts people's lives. They take him back to command, and he tells the astronauts to put on their spacesuits, use their emergency oxygen, then deliver the payload. Jenneru is appalled because it's a real big move. <laughs> It's not great. <laughs> and meanwhile, Belt looks like he's going to pass out. He's still huffing and puffing in this scene. Scully suspects Belt because she's less compromised than Mulder and his rose-colored glasses. 
<laughs> yet again. Jinro wants to go back. Oh, I skipped the part where Belt makes some nasty comment to Jinro about if she can't handle the situation, let other people do it. If you can't operate effectively, is what he says. As he's sweating and getting ready to pass out, because he's probably still drunk, and showed up an hour and a half late for the thing he's in charge of. Yep. Who's not operating effectively? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That man is everything is wrong with America. I told you. I'm glad I just came up with that. <laughs> I mean, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> The sexism in this episode. And the, I don't like the way Jenner written when she leaves. Because she just immediately gets all emotional. She's like, <laughs> this is the first time she's shown emotion that's... Not warranted? Well, I don't want to say not warranted. It's, it's warranted, but it's out of... It, okay. This out of is, character. Yes, this is the first time it feels out of character. When she's concerned, that's obviously an emotion. Mm -hmm. Some people don't seem to understand that anger is an emotion and concern is an emotion. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of emotions. And she's trying to get the job done. And the job, in her view, is making sure these men get back alive. Keep your astronauts safe, which seems like a good way to look at that job. Yes. Oh, and this dude has been emotional this whole episode. Holy God! <laughs> right. And it just gets worse. So the first time that we see Jinru crying, we're supposed to be like, oh, she's not doing her job. When she was there on time, she's putting the humans before the equipment, and she's gen she generally knows what she's doing and is leading this team. She seems very confident. So Jinru leaves after that comment from Belt, runs down a hallway, and is, is very upset. Mulder and Scully chase after her. She wants to go back. Mulder grabs her around the waist. Mulder, answer yourself. <laughs> there, we're back at mission control. The payload is delivered. It looked super simple. The crew is attacked by Lieutenant Colonel Belt's ghost, and Belt in mission control starts screaming. Just losing it. He's operating effectively. He's definitely in control. Then we're in the computer room, which is where we were walking around with our guns out last time. Yeah. In the dark. And Scully finds evidence that Belt knew about the leak and also about, oh, the leak being the evidence and the x-ray and all of this stuff that, I don't know if we said it was a leak yet, but he also knew about the Challenger. So our great American hero is responsible for getting all seven crew members killed, five astronauts and two payload specialists on the Challenger. Yeah, and I find it kind of gross that they did that in this episode. Me too. Did not care for that at all. No, I'm going to look up their names because I think that that's important. Krista McAuliffe, Ellison Onizuka, Ronald McNair, Judith Resnick, Dick Scobie, Gregory Jervis. They all look so happy in their pictures. Michael J. Smith. There you go. Those are the people. I didn't like that they added an actual real thing. No, me neither. That was gross. Know. While they're in the computer room, Jinru comes to find them because Belt has collapsed, doing a very good job of keeping everything under control. Operating effectively. They go find him. He's hiding under his desk. <laughs> and he wrote, help MMS on his desk. He's shaking and sweating. Belt is asking them to help him, saying it's tearing him apart. There's something seriously wrong with this guy. Yeah, he's possessed by an alien ghost. It hasn't come back yet, has it? I think it comes back in this scene. It's just all. Scully says he's having some kind of seizure. It seems like he's seeing things, or... He is shaking. Yeah. She orders 10 milligrams of diazepam. Mulder yells, no. Remember, Mulder, not the doctor. He's trying to tell us something. Mulder is not a doctor. He's a psychologist. 
but he does use focus to stop the seizure. So who's right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah it worked. Jinro wants to bring the ship down, but Belt yells no. So everybody's yelling no. <laughs> oh, everybody's just no. Everybody's like... so negative. <laughs> um, with the use of hypnosis, Mulder gets Belt to tell him about the damage to the spaceship. Hypnosis? I did not pick up on that. That's what he was doing. Yeah, you're right. The ghost thing that lives inside him, which is coming back for him. As Belt passes out, Jinro decides to bring the ship down. The astronauts are going to lose oxygen. Everything's bad. And Scully knows what's going to happen to them when they lose oxygen. (laughs) Wait, what? I forgot. (laughs) You die. Oh. And then, my friend, you die. (laughs) And somehow they can bring the ship down at 35 degrees when there's That's Belt. so cold. I know. When Belt is... Maybe it's Celsius. <laughs> and then it's actually pretty pleasant. Yeah. When Belt is in the hypnotic state and also still about to die, his heart's about to explode or something. I think they say his pulse is 195. Uh, his blood pressure oh. is like one... Yeah, high. It was just a lot. You're going to kill him. But no, I'm doing hypnosis. It's fine. <laughs> So they find out if the shuttle comes into orbit at 35 degrees, then it can survive and not blow up. Genero transmit that information right before the blackout. Then they're blacked out of communication for two minutes. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of radio calling. We're not sure what's going to happen, except we do know. Sorry, the cats are hissing in the background because of the tension. Yes, they're (laughs) they're so scared for that shuttle. (laughs) The shuttle comes in, everyone is relieved again in lots of claps. The space shuttle touches down, NBD. NBD. <laughs> we have another press conference. Jinru gives the press conference. Belt is in the hospital being attacked by his ghost shadow. <laughs> and he jumps out of the tallest hospital I've ever seen. Yeah. It's pretty high. It's a skyscraper hospital for astronauts. <laughs> they like to be closer to the stars. Yeah. Then we're in the X-Files office. Mulder thinks that Belt was possessed. This is the only time that Mulder brings any of this up. So that's why the description is terrible. Yes. Scully says that he was suffering from dementia, but he was doing his job very well. (laughs) Should definitely be in charge of all of this. Yeah. Still. And then we go to a military funeral. The Blue Angels do that one man missing flyover thing. I'm using my hands. You guys can't see all of my beautiful hand gestures here. So is that a real thing? Yeah. Neat. And all the military folks salute while wearing navy blue. But Scully is wearing maroon and she looks amazing in it. <laughs> that is the end. Well, here's my solution. Okay, here's your solution. Yes. Every man in charge of anything needs to be dethroned <laughs> and replaced because they may be suffering from either dementia or a ghost alien. Okay. This is another X-Files that was never solved. No. Closed. Well, it's closed because the ghost alien is gone. But nobody knows about it. Mulder does. Mulder doesn't. Mulder <coughs> suspects he was possessed. Yeah, and that he he took it. He sa- he specifically says that he took it with him. He killed himself to save us from it. That's how he stopped. Oh, what a great American hero. <laughs> yes. Well, my my solution's a little more complicated. Not necessarily complicated, but <laughs> no, mine's the most complicated. <laughs> Mine's going to take a lot of work, because mine is better inspections on shuttles. They said that over a hundred people touch every part. That's too many people. That's so many people. Streamline some shit, NASA. And they're talking about how that means nothing bad can happen. No, that's so many people. That's so many people you have to make sure are good at their job. That's that's too many people. It's too many. Streamline. So that's, that's my solution. Now, who I'm shipping is the alien ghost and Howard Graves. Oh! Oh! 
because he's just out there somewhere. I love it. That's so good. Howard Graves needs something to do. <laughs> yeah, he's just out there bouncing around, not even protecting Lauren Kite anymore. Nope, doing whatever in where, what, Philadelphia? It's just hanging in Philly. <laughs> yep. And this ghost alien, you know what, could use some sightseeing. I bet, I bet he hasn't gotten out very much. He's been in, what, Houston Command Center for 30 years? Yeah, at least. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I guess I'm just going to ship Michelle Jenneru and her fiancé. There, there weren't very many people with lines in this episode. No, so. there was a lot of space talk. Well, that's nine episodes down. It is. We have now lasted as long as a show called Hello Ladies, which was on either HBO or Showtime starring Stephen Merchant trying to date. It was actually really, really funny. And the live action version of The Tick. Oh. <laughs> no, not a fan of that one. I didn't. I don't know who Stephen Merchant is. So I have no feelings about it. You would know him if you saw him. He did the lip sync contest. He did Christina Aguilera's Dirty. We watched it. Oh. Oh. Tall, lanky, blonde guy. Yeah. Okay. Bag of dog food. Bag of dog food. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anything else? That's all I got. All right. The Cast Files is produced by Kristen Riley and Dave Reed. This episode edited by Dave Reed. You can email us at thecastfiles at gmail.com. That's the with two E's. You can get us on Twitter at castfiles. You can find me on Twitter at Dave Reed. That's D-A-I-V-E-R-E-E-D. Music by Hal Six. Logo by at Oka Art. That's O-O-K-A-A-R-T. Check out our tea public store. We have one thing on there. You can buy it. Please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Apparently really, really good for us. And we would really, really like you to be really, really good for us. I hope your run is going very well.